0: I am standing for the reading of the text this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a copy of the Word of God, I would encourage you to turn there. Certainly we hear the Word, but we also read the Word, and we digest the Word, we see the Word, we will later taste the Word, and we will have it in our all of our senses today. I'll begin reading at verse 1 through verse 16. Now, hear the word of God. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro. Carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men. And the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love. May grow up in all things. Into him who is the head. Christ. From whom the whole body. Joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Our gracious Father, as we come to this text today, we ask that your Spirit, which breathed these words so many years ago through your men of old, And yet, they are living words through the Spirit of God, and we ask that the Spirit would open up our eyes and our hearts, that we would be attentive, and not only that, that we would receive these things with gladness and joy, but with understanding. For what good does it do to hear 10,000 words that we do not understand? We would rather hear five, to which we can add our amen. may the Spirit of God open our understanding of our hearts and our minds, and may we embrace these things as unto the Lord, and so apply these things to our lives, individually and corporately, according to your good will and for your good pleasure, bringing forth a harvest of fruit, and we pray this in Jesus' name, our head, amen. You may be seated. In 1996, our family moved from seminary in South Carolina to Atlanta, Georgia. That was the year that the Worldwide Olympics came to Atlanta. There is a quiet and still place in the outer part of northern Atlanta, a place not far from where we lived, that the crew team did their rowing competition on a quiet little section of Lake Lanier. It was later that I found out that that piece of information was true because I found this as a as a very nice fishing hole, and I went on this quiet part of the lake in our in our boat and would occasionally take Caleb or even the family with me and we would go fishing and there out on the lake was now years later still the the venue from the nineteen ninety six Olympics, but even more so, uh, there were all these crew teams out on this quiet section of the lake, doing their practicing and their rowing in the sport of crew. I sat there and thought as I studied their moves, as I heard the the coxswain, who is the fellow in the or the gal in front of the shell, which they call their Uh, their little craft, their very light and narrow craft that can cut across the water with very little friction. Uh, The coxswain is the person that keeps the crew organized and, and, and unified and together. I thought what a great analogy that is to the church. Here is A highly organized and disciplined team working together, skimming across the surface of the water, and the teamwork was so refined, so disciplined, so well organized, I thought, what a wonderful picture of the church, or at least how it should be. And I often think about that image as I think about the church body corporately. When a church functions as this highly disciplined corporate body, one vessel accomplishing a common goal with such precision and coordination, they are essentially unstoppable. Now this is the portion at which the Apostle Paul begins to address the church in this wonderful little epistle that he is teaching and the Spirit is revealing the church. This is a the doctrine of the church in Ephesians. And that's the context in which we pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 1 through 3 has led us through, by and large, the, the doctrine of the church. But it is not something that is brand new. It's not a new concept. In fact, everything he is, is revealing in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 are things that have been of old and the foundation has been set And he comes to probably one of the most high watermarks and climactic passages in all of Scripture, so profound, in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, the mystery. Which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and the powers and the heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. What he's saying there is, he said, I've had a plan from the very beginning and this plan was in the mind of God. This plan began to be expressed in the history of God. And as this plan begins to unfold in this wonderful work of redemption, finding its climactic part in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, His ascension on high and the giving of His Spirit in order to bring His kingdom here upon this earth and to turn this world upside down for the glory of God. Here is this mystery that is revealed to us as the church. Been hidden in times past, but now is revealed. Oh, has been hinted at, yes. Has has been revealed in actually some very explicit statements. In fact, there were two passages this morning in the Matins service that as I was sitting there thinking, wow, this is not so hidden. This is just outward. (laughs) But to those then who did not have the understanding, the perspective and the eyes and the spirit to see it like we do, it was still a mystery. To those that... God's going to make a nation out of those who are not a nation. He's speaking beyond Israel. He is speaking to the time when the Gentiles will be brought into the one commonwealth that he had already established with his people. And now you've got this wonderful revelation that even the angels and the principalities and the powers look and they are observing the church and they are learning of the manifold wisdom of God and they say, Whoa! Praise God. It's, it's one of the high marks of Scripture. And so Paul then begins the application portion of this book, which is chapter 4, 5, and 6, and he begins it here. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. It's not an individual application here. That that is right in line with the context of this great mystery that has been revealed, which you are a part. Now, unlike Romans, the book of Romans, Romans was addressing the doctrine of salvation really with quite an individual focus and application. It's all true on the individual level. Not just at the individual level. So Ephesians focuses on the corporate salvation of Christ's church. And he applies that to her corporate sanctification. Her corporate growth. And so we come to the next chapter when he even makes this analogy between husband and a wife. That it is Christ who loved the church and died for her. Who did Christ die for? He died for the church. He died for his bride. He died for the sheep. He died corporate for the corporate body. There is a contrasting worldview and viewpoint from which we we come to the eyes of Scripture. One is a covenantal approach. The covenantal view of Scripture has been taught all the way from Genesis 3.15 onward. In fact, Genesis 2 onward. From the time that God created man, he dealt with man only by virtue and by way of and through a relationship, a covenantal relationship always been that way. And so therefore, from the very beginning, he's training us in a covenantal way, a covenantal thinking, a covenantal, 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 covenantal household, corporate. But yet there's an entirely different worldview and One that if you do not understand the foundation of the Old Testament and what you do not stand and you just segregate out the old from the new and you begin thinking autonomously as Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. You begin thinking independently as Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. And we begin thinking individualistically and that has come right into the church. I'm taking a little excursion here because it is so important to connect these dots. Let me speak a little bit on that. There is a worldview that you have been subjected to, most likely not directly, but certainly indirectly. And You've grown up in a culture of the modern evangelical church, if you've grown up in the modern evangelical church, and you have been subjected to a worldview of individualism. Anytime we add the ISM, we're looking at a worldview. Let me give you a little bit of history from a philosophical perspective, but this is certainly not new. This has certainly been true from the very beginning, but there was more of a systematization of this worldview within the Protestant church and has had very fertile soil in America to flourish, and you and I have been subject to this. There's a fellow by the name of Søren Kierkegaard in the mid-19th century. He was a German theologian and pastor, also a philosopher, and he was wrestling with the concepts of existence. Particularly in his time and in his struggles, he was grappling with existence over against Hegel's dialectic and his philosophy, Hegel's philosophy of idealism. Hegel was attempting to systematize all of reality except for existence itself. Kierkegaard saw a big flaw in this. So Hegel was emphasizing universals. Off of some of the old Greek philosophers, Kierkegaard was focused on personal experience in life. So you got the universals, and you have something that's happening right down here at the very personal, experiential, individual person. There were three life experiences that affected this particular perspective of Kierkegaard. First of all, he, when he was growing up, he grew up under a very strong, domineering father who was a professing Christian. And this particular overbearing father was very difficult to please with Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard's father had very high standards for him. But then later in life, he found out that his father, his authority figure in his life, his very strong authority figure, was not as moral of an upright man that he thought him to be. And his whole authority figure was crushed before his eyes The second deep experience that Kierkegaard had that did affect his theology, his philosophy, and his outward view of life was a time when he fell deeply in love with a woman named Regine Olson. He became engaged to to her and he loved her deeply. But he was filled with a sense of unworthiness in his life, and so he withdrew from that relationship and even from the pastoral ministry For which he had been studying. He looked at Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. When God led Abraham out to say. Sacrifice thy son. He looked at that almost as a paradigm. For his own life. And he interpreted his call in life. And that took precedent over. The rational and the ethical aspects. At that point. And it deeply affected him. He saw this personal sacrifice as his manner of authentic discipleship, like Abraham. A third event happened that as he was um, interpreting in his personal experiences that would affect later, he, he wrote a satirical paper which then resulted in him being publicly ridiculed and he became really the laughing stock of Denmark and that deeply affected him on an emotional and personal level. The thing to remember about Kierkegaard is that the interpretation of those personal experiences would become the very factors that he would attempt to make sense of his personal faith in God. He did grow up in a Christian home. He did have a theological basis in the Protestant uh, Reformed Lutheran church. But he attempted to explain these personal experiences in light of more of a subjective and a paradoxical view of faith. Like Abraham offering up Isaac against all reason, it became somewhat of a launching pad in his own mind, in his own entire view of this existence into a leap of faith. He actually became the father, quite unwittingly, of what we now know as existentialism, which has taken on quite a secular, particular but he was the father of it, his worldview of existence. The focus on Christian faith was on personal commitment. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, right? We talk about personal commitment. But he would consider this personal commitment in terms of the authentic individual firsthand experience and he did this by rejecting the inauthentic as he would call it acceptance of second hand values you see it has to start all over again with every generation It's isolated and set apart from a greater whole. He rejected the Christian faith handed down. Finding one standing before God in the presence of a corporate identity was quite foreign from him. He says, quote, The most ruinous evasion of all is to be hidden in the crowd of an attempt to evade God's supervision in an attempt to get away from hearing God's voice as an individual. There are subtleties here. He stood against any and all corporate notions of the Christian faith. He stood against any, the, the idea of a Christian state. He stood against household theology against corporate interconnectivity of one member to another member, he identifies as an individual. In the venture of faith, the individual stands alone before God. It's your personal stance, the individual. He died a very lonely man in isolation. He chose for himself his own epitaph which simply read that individual. That's an entire worldview that has come into, and particularly so into American Protestant evangelical circles. It stands over and against the covenantal aspect. And while there are truths to be made known, even as we embrace it is done in a context which works over and against truths of equal importance. I was out of seminary and studying the covenants before I even came to the place for the first time in my life in over 30 years of hearing even such thing as called corporate salvation, corporate sanctification, That's what Ephesians 5 is all about. And for the first time, I'm like, whoa, I've never heard this. My entire life has been interpreted through individual, personal, alone experience with God. This is just icing on the cake, but not inseparable. But a covenantal approach, this is inseparable from your personal experience with God through Jesus Christ. Paul begins the application portion of this epistle with the exhortation. Walk worthy of your calling with which you now have been called. In the context of this corporate body which is called the church. Which is the body of Christ. As he says in Ephesians 1. It is the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ here upon this earth. Where Jesus is the head and we're the body. Where through this supper in which we will partake of shortly, there is this vital union between Christ and His body, so intimate as a husband and a wife is, that this is a union of one flesh from two. And as He says, walk worthy of your calling. He's saying this here in this very corporate Context In this context of the body, live your Christian life with a view toward Christ and His body. One of the problems we face in American church today is this individualism. <clears throat> Our life with Christ is worked out, however, on a covenantal scene. It's always that way. When one member suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. We are inseparably connected together in an organic body, if you like it or not. It's the way it is. If you are in covenant with God, it by virtue makes you in covenant with one another because you're in the body corporately which is in covenant with God. I don't know, maybe perhaps some of you are, I should just stop right there and just have you chew on that for the rest of the day. This is why the Reformers and the historic church has always, has always maintained that apart from the visible body of Christ, there is no possible salvation. If Christ died for the body and you are outside of the body, how can you claim that Christ died for you being apart from and outside of the body for whom Christ died? Your corporate salvation and your individual salvation are not two different things. They are inseparably connected. Now, if you're still with me, let's press forward. There's an application here, and I think that it's an appropriate application, one after not only Christ, but even after Paul, who would say, Now I fill up in my body the sufferings that remain for you, the church. In another place, he says, so be like me. It's not far off of the cry that he is saying right here. He says, everything I do, I do through the filter of what is best for the body. Not for Paul. For the body. Everything you do. Jonathan and Thomas and Perry and Larry and Pierce and, and I'll, I'll pick on this side as well. And Bert and Daniel and Wes and Chris. and uh, Everything you do in life, not just the things you do at church. Everything you do, do for the body of Christ. That's how you give your life to Jesus. That's how you love Him in a very specific and concrete way. What is best for the body? What is best for the body? How can I serve with my gift for the body? Oh, I want to be a mouth. Or I want to be a foot. But God has made you a hand. Well, I don't want to be a hand. What is best for the body is to serve in the grace that He has appointed you. And therein you will be the most satisfied and the happiest you can be in your life. When you're giving your life a sacrifice for the body. Paul says, I give my life as a drink offering for your joy. Now... Fulfill ye my joy, that you might convince me that my labor is not in vain. You see this—this this is how it operates. This is how it works, and that's why Paul begins. He says, "I walk worthy of your calling, with which you have been called." And he begins this exhortation by saying, "Now there is a manner in the which." You are to be called, and he points that out in verse two with all lowliness and gentleness. He first begins with a manner of the inner, the, a manner of the inner spirit. There's a lowliness and a gentleness in the inner person that has to have the right disposition so that you can live out your calling in a worthy manner. It begins in the inner man. It expresses an inner disposition and in a spirit toward others with lowliness, meekness. Not arrogance, not pride, not being puffed up, not by competition, lowliness. He takes from the inner man and he moves it to the outward expression of the members of the body when he says, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. With long suffering, suffering long with someone that has done you wrong or is a constant irritant or whatever the problem is, suffer long, suffer long. By the way, that is a fruit of the Spirit. The way that comes about in your life is it is an outward working of, it is a byproduct of something. When you walk with the Spirit, He brings this forth so that you can do this. You will not do that in the flesh, you will not do that naturally, it cannot be done. But in the spirit, you can suffer long. Some of you brothers and sisters need to learn what this is. And you have some of the best opportunities to learn suffering long right there in your own homes. But we also have a place right here in our own home. This is our home. This is our church home. You're our family. We're brothers and sisters. And the outward expression of that inner disposition is now As it relates to long suffering. Bearing with one another in love. Now there's the effort of our calling in verse 3. And he goes on and says. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Walk worthy of your calling. How? In meekness and lowliness of mind. Long suffering and bearing with one another. But now endeavoring. Here's the action. Here's the verb. Here is the effort being put behind it. Here to keep The unity, endeavoring to keep the unity in the bond of the Spirit. Unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that gets right down to the essence of the Christian character. That harkens back to the Beatitudes when he says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. As he opens chapter 5 in Matthew chapter 5, which you might remember, he then ends it when he says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of the Father. He's telling us something of a completely unnatural, unfleshy, supernatural work of the Spirit in us, and if we can do that to our enemies, certainly it's expected of us to endeavor to keep the bond of unity in the Spirit of peace. You see, we don't, we don't do that very well. I would say this congregation is actually exceptional in some of those regards, and we still don't do it very well. To walk worthy of a Christian calling necessitates this endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's not optional. It's characteristic of really who we are. And Paul exhorts us regarding our inner disposition And how you relate to one another and the fellow believers. Not only in this body, but universally so. And he then takes this oneness and this unity. And he regards your calling. Now walk worthy. Walk worthy of the Lord. He tells us of our inner disposition. He tells us how that expresses its way. And he tells us what to do to endeavor. And now he's going to express this oneness. Verses 4 through 6, there's this Catholicity of our calling. It doesn't just play it out here. It's the Catholicity. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all. And in you all. There's an acknowledgement and a declaration in these verses regarding the catholicity of our calling, of our calling that we are to walk worthy of regarding the church. I mean, the bride of Christ, the temple of the living God, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the great Zion. This new creation that comes down to earth as the bride of the Lamb. And to understand and to know our calling, it first begins with knowing the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ his Son. Not the God of your imagination. Not the God that results from your experiences that you try to figure out. But the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ, His Son. And knowing this calling is single. It is exclusive. It is one. One. One body and one spirit, one Lord, one Holy Spirit, one Father, one, one, one. This is what Jesus was praying for in John 17. I and my Father in one, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one, that we might be one. I bristle in my spirit when I hear people referring to the reformed faith. You will not make brownie points with this pastor. It implies there are different faiths by which we can come to God. Well, you believe in the Arminian faith. Do you believe Arminians are in the pale? Well, some of them are. Well, then that's not an Armenian faith. I'm in the Reformed faith. I've got it figured out better than they do. You can already see the Kierkegaardian individualistic, autonomous splitting between the two. No, one faith. In 200 years, somehow, unknown to us, because we've been living with some blight and some error that we do not now see, but our children and many generations will see, and they'll look back, and maybe they call it the ultra-reformed super faith because there's some area of, that we're not even seeing. Or maybe they will just simply call it, ah, oh, man, the one faith. There's only one way to God, because there's only one God, and it's only His way, and it's only through Jesus Christ, and there's only one church, and there's only one faith. And there's only one baptism. There's only one body. Be careful how we liturgize our children and how we converse with one another. One gospel. One gospel. Exclusive. Every Lord's Day, and we'll do it again. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. you ever pay attention to those words? It is your profession. You see, that's what I believe. And you need to make sure that what your actions are and how your thinking is and how you talk about other churches and congregations and have the bride of Christ is in line with your profession and your creed. I believe in that oneness. Now this certainly isn't license for any kind of ecumenical in the bad sense of the word or what the World Council of Churches is standing for or the National Council of Churches for that fact. No, no, no. They're taking this oneness and they're incorporating other faiths and other ideas and other philosophies and the Jews and the Muslims and they're getting together with all kinds of rubbish and liberal theology and and. And for all of that, Paul would say, let them be anathema. If anybody brings to you another gospel, we're talking about one church with one faith, one faith. And we rally around that one Lord in that one faith, and we are the one body of Jesus. But it is a whole lot more than what's going on here. The church... And this oneness has a potential, and she is only as powerful as she is unified. The church should be like that highly organized, choreographed, rowing team, synchronized at a highly trained level of unity. Their stroke is one. Their efforts are unified with a common cause. And the teamwork is harmonious with every member doing his part. And he has a place and a role that's assigned by the Spirit of God, working harmoniously together for a common goal and cause. So what is that cause? What is that purpose? And we move in this unity into the very growth of the church. That's what's going on from verses 7 through 16. God has established the church as an organic body with many members working together in harmony in order to. In order to. There's a purpose. There's a design to grow the church. This is where we are in in the kingdom parables of this leavening uh, idea. This is the kingdom growth, but God loves the growth of the body. Don't let all of the hoopla going out there and all of the concepts of church growth distract you away from what God loves and He loves church growth. In fact, that's what this next section is about. Verse 12, he talks about the edification, that is the building up of the body. Verse 13, he talks about the growth into the maturing of the perfect, mature, complete man. In verse 15, he says, we will grow up and do all things. In verse 16, it causes growth as the body is built up and edifies itself in love. You can't mistake the theme of church growth here. This section is addressing that. And contrary to a lot of what is being said today about the growth of the church, the Bible is very clear how church growth comes about. The first things we notice in this passage are gifts for this very purpose. In verses 7-11, through But to each one he gave a grace to the measure of Christ's gift. And it is Christ that gives the gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. The idea here is a victory parade after a great battle and the ancients would have this great battle and they would go into a foreign nation or to a city and they would have the war against the city or the nation and from that they would then take all of the spoil and upon their return after the great victory there was celebration and festivity and and rejoicing and they had this wonderful parade where all the excitement of even the children and the ladies would come out and the whole city was gathered together as they then took the spoils and they began throwing it to the crowd that's the visual and Christ has come down and He has led captivity, captivity. He leads the victory parade. He has made the victory. He has claimed the victory. He has spoiled the rich man or the strong man's abode. And now claiming all of the nations and all of the goods of the earth, which is the Lord's. He now then takes and He's spreading these gifts out to His church. And He's given these gifts And all the people are festively receiving them and joyful as Christ is walking at the very beginning of this and He is now giving some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. But to each one, He gives gifts. Now the idea here in all of those gifts, it's not like, oh, i got a bunch of gold. You know, it's even better than that. I've got a gift by which now I can serve the body in my love for Jesus. I can see this world turned upside down. So he gives these various gifts. He's not just focusing on one particular kind of gift, though he does identify... Those gifts in verse 11 in terms of leaders. There are important leaders in the church. In Christ's economy for church growth. And we see these leaders are a a gift. And they're necessary. They're important. And when God gives leaders to the church, we know the church is growing. Heritage is growing, people. We just got a new leader. What is noticeable in this eight-man crew team, highly organized, is the coxswain is the only guy facing the direction where the shell is going. The whole team is going that way. He has to maintain the vision. He maintains the unity. He maintains the focus. He keeps the team coordinated, and together, he steers the vessel to the appointed end, for which The whole team is striving. And God gives the church's vision through the pastoral ministry of the word and sacrament. How do we know where we're going? It's because the word has declared where we're going. And how do we believe that? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how will they know without a preacher? And so we have the ministry of the word and the sacraments given to the congregation through the leadership. But God gives leaders or gifts to everyone. Every one of you has a gift. To everyone, he says, to each one, grace has been given. If you're baptized, you're a part of the body. You're part of the visible body. And everyone who is a part of the body has been baptized by the Spirit of God and has been given a gift for the growth of the whole. That's where he's going. That's where he's driving. That's, That's where he's now focusing. He gives a variety of gifts, and to everyone is expected to participate. And part of the walking worthy of your calling for ministers in the church, they have similar roles. The analogy certainly breaks down to the coxswain, But it's the people that do the lion's share of the work. And that's why he says, I have given these gifts for, verse 12, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up. Of the body of Christ. It is the people that do the lion's share of ministry. Everyone has a part. And verse 13 tells us where it's all going. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. And the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's where we're all going with it. One man. I have found in my 20 three years of ministry now in full-time ministry, that the most disgruntled, the most unhappy, the most unsatisfied, and the weakest members of the church are those who are not serving with their gifts, who are just not serving. They're on the margins. They're on the fence. They're out here. They are trying to consume the benefits of the church, while they are not a contributor to it, and those will be the most unhappy and the selfish. Those will be the ones whose souls vex them on a constant basis. They will not be satisfied. If you can be a true Christian, remain in the church, and be completely satisfied by having all of this from an individualistic perspective, then you are grossly misinformed and misguided. That's not at all how you are intended to function in the body. And that is not how you can grow in your spiritual faith. can't do it. You literally cannot grow. Because part of how you are growing is inseparable to the body's growth. The sanctification of the whole body where you contribute is a part of your own spiritual growth. Even as you function in the body according to your spiritual gift. And so God gives a variety of gifts, but everyone does his part. But there are a lot of obstacles to face. There are a lot of things to get around. Perhaps you don't even see the obstacle because you're not heading the direction. You're you're doing your work. But ministers are equipped to help the people to do the work of the ministry, and they coach them, and they help them steer around those obstacles, perhaps some that they don't even see. And it's part of the beauty and the truth and the goodness of the gospel when it says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro by the carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth, which implies the truth is not always easy to take, in love, which implies the way that we are to do it with a higher end. Not just for their physical well-being, but for their eternal well-being. Speaking the truth in love. May grow up in all things in him who is the head, Christ. Then when we consider, then coming to this final part where he pulls together how the church grows. We come to verse 16. That's how the church grows. There are a lot of ideas about church growth today. There's marketeers. There's the corporate model. There's, we go out like uh, Willow Creek and those guys did up outside the Chicago area. And Before we start the church, we go out and we take a, a survey. We write down, what do you like in the church? What don't you like in the church? What kind of things would you like to see in the church? And they write it all down. They come back and they form a church based upon what everybody would like or dislike. And they give it to them the way that it's most palatable. And yeah, they had 25,000 people showing up. That's not how Jesus says to go to the church. It's not marketing. It's not through methodologies. It's not through evangelistic methodologies. Evangelism, yes. Yeah, not, method, not methodologies. Not guilt manipulation. Not measures or tools or instruments no the way you grow the church is designed very specifically and god says it is from the whole body when it is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth in the body for the edifying of itself in love that's church growth right Jesus wants church growth when the church mushrooms. I know people have different philosophies. How large will heritage be? I have no idea. How large will the church of Jerusalem get on that very first day? No, we did not plan for three or five thousand people. We don't have a church building big enough for that, Lord. uh, Can you change direction here? Uh, You must have made a mistake. Do not plan for how big this church is going to get. Do not plan for how small she's going to get. That is none of our business. Jesus just likes church growth. Kingdom growth. And as every member does its part and everyone is functioning as a joint and a ligament and a ball and a socket come together at a joint. The ligaments are holding it together. The muscles are energizing. Every single part has a function in the body. And all of a sudden, if you get tendonitis, the wrist doesn't work so well. Or if you get a broken bone, your foot doesn't work so well. And the whole body is knowing it. And it's not as functional. And until that body part gets healed, you might not be very productive. See, when every member is striving together for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that is part of the calling that we have been called to. And that's what we're striving for. And we function as we should in the body. Jesus is going to grow the body. You're just being faithful. God's going to take care of the other things. He'll grow us spiritually. He'll grow us numerically. He'll grow us in ways that we don't see. But this is just not This is just not it right here. This is just not it. I don't know how this works, but the church is somewhat mystical and what he is doing here. Somehow, some way affects the church in China. It affects the church in Iran. And those saints that are being persecuted over there, even apart from uh, the media and all of the communications and the internet that we have, even apart from that, it affects us. And for many, many generations to come, the metaphor is the body. It's a living organism. It's one. It's not many. And Jesus is our head. And when everybody's functioning like it should, it's going to grow. It's being faithful to the ministry. It's being faithful to the ministry of prayer. It's being faithful to the ministry of the word and the sacraments. It's being faithful as members to serve one another and to serve even the body corporately. It's work from everyone. Rowing on a crew team is considered one of the most difficult and strenuous sports there is. I never knew that. It's one of the very few sports that requires every muscle group in your body to perform. It's difficult. Every member has to exert himself as much as the next in order to stay unified and productive for the whole. Every rower must listen to the leader to ensure the timing and the rhythm and the power and the, is all coordinated in a way with their final destination all in mind. And the church in those ways are no different. Even as God has added another elder, and I expect he's going to add two, three, four more, more deacons, but you know, it's not just the leaders. It's, it's the body. We have new members that are being born. We're expecting two with, in a very short amount of time, a third is on the way. And who knows? Perhaps there's more that don't, you don't even know about. God knows. Teach your children to be a part of the body. Teach your children to grow up in the function of the body of Christ. He continues to add and develop his gifts here. He's growing the kingdom, and his church is growing into that one perfect man, unified in the faith. And we all have our part to do, and each one of the members are here, are part of the very exciting journey that God has in store for us. But it's also a part of a corporate ministry that we share together in that journey. We're all part of the story. And you need to see yourself and your salvation as inseparable from the body of Christ. See it covenantally, not individualistically. See it as the body of Christ inseparable from its head, not as the individual. Be an active part of the team, a living member of the living organism, which is called the church. Row together. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Walk worthy of your calling to which you were called. And let's expect great things from God. in growing this congregation as we commit to his method of church growth. And as we commit to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Our gracious father in heaven, we thank you for Christ and his church. We thank you for allowing us to participate in this tremendous body, inseparable from its head. And shortly we will partake of him in a mysterious way when bride and groom come together. And how thankful we are for the hope and the certainty of that triumphal day When Christ comes back and we see Him face to face and we rejoice, but now we see Him through faith, we still rejoice. And we taste of Him in this bread and we drink of Him in this cup. You have not left us alone, nor will you ever forsake us or leave us. And we pray that you would apply these truths to us in the way that the Spirit only can do, making it very specific to us on an individual level, and even on the corporate level, because we know these two are inseparable. So we commit all of these things into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.